About this um, this past week on the newspapers, you guys pro probably read about it too and saw it on TV. Um, the annual Nathan's July 4th hot dog eating contest. You guys hear about that? Read about that? Every year, contestants gather from throughout the world to compete to see who can eat the most hot dogs in 12 minutes. The back-to-back -back champion was a Japanese professional speed eater, Takeru the Tsunami Kobayashi. He destroyed the competition. For the second consecutive year, he scarfed down 50 and one-half hot dogs and buns all in 12 minutes. He's a 24-year-old guy. He weighed 113 pounds before the contest. After he weighed over 120 pounds. He gained 7 pounds in 12 minutes. He bettered his 2001 world record by eating a half a hot dog more in 100 degree heat. The guy who came in second place uh, was a New York City transit conductor, Eric the Badlands Booker. He's six foot five pounds, six foot five inches, 400 pounds, and all he could eat was 26 hot dogs. He told ESPN he trained so much for this year's competition. He trained by drinking gallons of water to stretch his stomach. And still, he came in second place. Uh, Kobayashi used the Solomon method, where he split the hot dogs in half, and he put both pieces in his mouth one at a time, or at the same time. Booker employed a new method this year. It's called the double Japanese. He put the two hot dogs in his mouth. He got the buns and soaked them in water and scarfed them down as well. Um, but Kobayashi uh, triumphed. And he said to, through an interpreter, I feel good. I got over 50, even by half. Maybe next year I'll do better. Well, that is unbelievable. 50 and one half hot dogs in 12 minutes. When I read about that, it reminded me of an incident at Cornerstone. <laughs> so you guys know what I'm talking about. We had a um, picnic at the beach incident a few years ago, and I was talking with a guy who had hot dogs for dinner. And I asked him how, much, how many he ate, and he said he had eight hot dogs. I was like, man, I said, why? How could you eat so much? And he, his response was, I didn't want to overdo it. Right? <laughs> So he stopped at eight. He controlled himself. He controlled and stopped at eight. I was just shocked. Interesting definition of overdoing it. One day I want to maybe have a competition and retreat, hot dog eating contest, and my money is on that brother. Well, the contest at Coney Island is a vivid testimony to the fact that we live in the land of plenty. Do we not? I mean, we have an abundance of things, especially in terms of food. I mean, from the mother load at Claim Jumper, super big gulps to 7-Eleven. You guys ever tried the 4x4s at In-N-Out? I mean, four cheese and four meat and one, one burger. <clears throat> I mean, in this country, in our day and age, in our culture, lack of food is something we never, ever, or very rarely worry about. I mean, our concern is never, will we eat? Our concern is, what are we going to eat? and how much. But that is not the case in many places, places of the world today. And that, is, that was definitely not the case in ancient times. In ancient times, in biblical times, hunger 
was a common experience, experienced by many. Um, there were many through natural disasters or man-made occurrences, often went without food. And that is why in Christ's prayer, he calls them to pray for daily bread. That was part of their prayer. We, we rarely pray for that, but that was a basic staple of need, and that was a part of their prayer lives. Remember the tempter came to, Matthew, came to Christ in Matthew 4, and one of the temptations that he put before Christ was that if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread, knowing that if Christ were to do this, he would win the masses. Because there was such a need for food in the land during ancient times. And Christ said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, in our study today, in John chapter 6, it is amazing. Just as God the Father provided bread from heaven to the Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, God rained manna from heaven where they could eat. Well, in like manner, we see our Lord also providing food in a public, in a, in a public and powerful manifestation of His true identity. By doing this, He's likening Himself to God of the Old Testament. As God provided bread for the nation of Israel, so again, thousands of years later, here is God's Son providing bread for the nation of Israel once again. Well, let's go to the text. If you'll open your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to John chapter 6. Today, I was talking to someone uh, before service. Uh, we will be studying, we'll be returning to our study in the Gospel of John. It's been a while since we've um, looked at John. We've had quite a few breaks in our study thus far. You know, I, I for one, am really hoping to bear down from this point on and really establish a greater continuity in our time with this gospel. I hope that we can um, really deepen our time together in the Word and really set a good pace as we study through John. It took us about om almost a year, a little over a year, to get through five chapters. Hope that's not the pace for the next 16 to come. Well, as we come to John chapter 6, um, we need to understand that we're in the midst of a pivotal and transitional time in the ministry of the Lord. This period, many Bible students call the period of controversy. The period of controversy, starting in chapter 5. Now, until chapter 5, our Lord's ministry was on a nothing but an upward swing. His popularity was growing. His fame was being recognized throughout the land. Streams of people were coming from the four corners of Israel, seeking to follow him. Disciples were excited, involved in ministry. It was a time of great, just skyrocketing ministry, popularity in terms of ministry for the Lord. In chapter 5, all of that changes to a period of controversy. Now, there were some semblances of conflict that was felt in John chapter 2. Remember that? When Christ entered Jerusalem, and he chased out the money changers and the sellers of animals. There was some confrontation there between Christ and the Pharisees. And then there is some minor debate between the disciples of Christ and the Pharisees in John chapter 4. But the deep-seated hatred and animosity that the Pharisees had towards Christ, it does not surface until this period of our Lord's ministry. John chapter 5. 
John introduces to his readers to a time in our Lord's ministry where his claims as the Messiah, his claims as the Son of God, were not just debated, but they were rejected by the Jewish leaders. To the point where the Jewish leaders plotted to assassinate Christ. They plotted to murder him, John 5.18. The Jews tried all the harder to kill him. So there's a definite sense, beginning with chapter 5, that we're entering a whole different stage, a whole different period in his ministry. In fact, within one year, our Lord will be murdered. He will be assassinated. Within a year's time, they will crucify him because of his statements concerning himself. Also, it's interesting to note, in John chapter 5, the Lord is rejected by the leaders of Israel. In John chapter 6, he is rejected by the crowds. He's rejected by the masses. And later on in John chapter 6, he is rejected even by most of his own disciples. His own disciples turn against him, desert him, and will follow him no longer. I mean, it is a surprising twist of events. It's an unexpected turn of events. Especially surprising because it is a time when our Lord's popularity was skyrocketing. It was growing. But in one chapter, literally in a matter of a few days... Most of the crowds that have dispersed, they would desert Christ, and they would never follow Him again. To the point that by the time we get to the end of chapter 6, our Lord turns to the twelve. Because so many are leaving and deserting Him, He turns to the twelve and He asks them, Do you want to leave also? He asks the twelve, Do you want to leave? They want to make Him their king. They called him the prophet that was prophet, promised in Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses, my servant, after he had died, has died. God will send another prophet in, in, in a greater manner to speak for, speak for God. And they said, this is the prophet that was pro promised in Deuteronomy 18. In a single day, they would desert him and reject him. This chapter marks what we might very well call the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. In a sense, in terms of ministry, it is decline and conflict and controversy all the way down, culminating at the cross. Now, one more thing to note, the geographical location of where this rejection took place is of significance as well. The area where this took place. In John chapter 5, if you remember, our Lord was in Jerusalem. That's the southern area of Israel. So he was rejected in Judea. Metropolitan area, the religious center, the religious leader rejected him. In John chapter 6, John shows us that Jesus was rejected also in Galilee, northern Israel, near his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth. John's account of this double rejection shows the wholesale rejection of Jesus Christ by the nation of Israel. That the whole nation turned against him. Now, what is most interesting is that the central event that sets this whole process of decline and controversy in motion is his most popular miracle. Right? What really activates and sets off, puts in motion this whole time of great controversy is his most popular and public miracle of feeding the 5,000. 
Now, before we get into the text, I need to do a little bit of a um, biblical background uh, to understand the significance of this miracle. Just a brief background because we haven't been in John for a, quite a few weeks. Uh, if you remember, several, several months ago, we studied how the Gospel of John is structured around eight sign miracles. Right? There are eight miracles that John terms as signs pointing to his deity, pointing to his messianic role, and how the whole gospel is structured around those eight signs. Now, this miracle of feeding the 5,000 is the fourth sign. The first sign was the changing of water into wine in Cana. The second was the healing of the royal official son again in Cana. The third sign, John chapter 5, was the healing of the paralyzed man in the uh, pool of Bethesda. This story of the feeding of the 5,000 is the fourth sign, four of eight, recorded by John. It is, apart from the resurrection, the only miracle that is found in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, aside from the resurrection, all record this miracle. As, I, as I've said, it is by far his most public miracle. It directly impacted thousands. There are 5,000 men. More likely, there are over 20,000 men, women, and children gathered in this deserted place. They all experienced firsthand, physically, the impact of this miracle. Now, <coughs> excuse me, a little bit more about the historical background to this miracle. What has occurred before our Lord performed this miracle? Um, the Lord by now, he, he's two years into his public ministry. Um, he has begun what they call the great work in Galilee. In his second year, he comes north to Israel and does extensive ministry around this region. There are many key events that lead up to his miracle. Uh, particularly the gospel writers, the synoptic gospel writers, Mark and Luke, give us detailed information on these precursory events. Mark chapter 6, Luke 9, tell us that Jesus sent out his disciples two by two, and he sent them out to the four corners of Israel. He sent them out with the authority and the power to heal the sick and drive out demons, to give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, to raise even the dead. He, gave them with, he sent them out with that kind of authority and power, and also he sent them out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. While they were away, fully involved in this ministry of the gospel, King Herod arrested John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist, the light that was pointing to Jesus Christ, he had been preaching against Herod's sin of marrying his brother's wife. And because of this, and Herod, he knew that John the Baptist was a holy and a righteous man, Matthew 6.20. Even though he knew that because he was proclaiming his sins publicly, confronting his sins publicly, he had him arrested. You might know the story during a banquet. The daughter of his wife so pleased him with her, with her dancing that he impulsively promised to give her anything she, she asked for. Anything she requested, he would give. Well, to a shock, under her mom's guidance, she asked for the baptizer's head. Herod was had a great, great dilemma. He, Mark 6.20, he knew that John was a devout, holy, and righteous man, above reproach. And yet he 
made this promise in public. He was caught in his own sins and his own lusts. He orders the execution of John the Baptist, no doubt causing a great stir in the nation, causing a great stir among the disciples of Christ. Many of them had followed John for many years, and definitely in the heart of Christ, hearing of John's death caused him much grief. Well, the disciples hear about the execution. They return to Christ. And they've been involved in ministry for several months now. And they come back to report to him all the great and wonderful things that were done in his name. They want to kind of huddle together and get together and, and, and get on the same page in terms of ministry, what they have done. They want to kind of grieve together for John and kind of spend time as a group of disciples just resting, resting together. Well, Mark chapter 6.31 tells us that the people would not let them rest. They kind of hey, snuck around and followed Peter behind trees and behind rocks. They kind of tailgated them throughout all of Israel. They found out where Christ was staying and masses of people began to converge towards Christ. Christ and his disciples tried to escape. They withdrew themselves, it says in Mark chapter 6, to a very secluded place. A place where there is no main street nearby, no main towns, no place to eat, no creature comforts. Thinking that in this desolate place, we can have some privacy. They go to the other side of the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. But the Gospel writer tells us the crowds were unrelenting in their pursuits and they find him and his disciples. It says in verse 33 of Mark chapter 6, many who saw them leaving recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns, and they understood where they were headed to, and they got there ahead of them. I right? imagine Christ's disciples climbing over a hill, thinking they'd be all by themselves, and they get up and they see thousands of people waiting for them. Middle of nowhere. Our Lord and the disciples are obviously tired and weary from their ministry and their long journey. The crowd is swelling to a number well over 20,000 men, women, and children. Our Lord, seeing the masses of people, He could not turn away from them. He could not, He would not leave them. It says in Mark 6.34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, Mark says he had compassion on them. Christ had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Matthew 14, 14. Matthew says that Jesus had compassion on them and he healed their sick. So here is our Lord teaching the Word of God and ministering to the sick. We see here the power of example. The power of example. You would agree with me that the heart of Christ is indeed amazing and humbling. I mean, think about it. He must have been so tired and weary. He must have so much wanted to be alone with his disciples, to hear of their encouraging reports. He must so want to gather with his disciples and grieve the death of their friend, their co-laborer, John the Baptist. 
But what, is, but what do we see? We see the Lord selflessly giving himself to serve complete strangers. We see the Lord full of compassion for the people. He is fully aware that they are here, not because of their loyalty to Christ, not because they love the Lord, not because they have genuine faith. He knows their fickle nature. He knows that they are motivated by all the wrong things. They are here because of, they, they want to see miracles. They want to see signs. They want to see some juggling act by Christ. And he knows within a day's time that these crowds will leave him. And yet he doesn't turn them away. He doesn't withdraw himself away from the crowds. Nor he immerses himself because he has compassion towards them. He teaches them God's truth and he heals the sick. I believe there's a lesson for us in ministry. I don't know if it's intended by John or not, but definitely there's a, a lesson for us on all of us who are involved in ministering to people. That when we minister to people, it's never over. We can't punch the clock when we minister and serve and love one another. At work we can. At work we can tell the boss, my job is done. I get off at five. It's in the contract. My job is done. I have summer vacation. I have weekends off. I gave at the office. This is my time now. Leave me alone. Well, that's not the example of Christ. And that is not to be the heartbeat of ministry as believers following Christ's example. We must have compassion for people. We must have compassion for ministry and for one another. True love for one another must be our sole motive. True love for the lost, for strangers, must be our sole motive in ministry. Right. I mean, it is so humbling to study the Gospels, study the Gospel of John. We're not studying doctrine, we're not studying theology, we're not studying verses, we're not parsing verbs here. As we study the Gospel of John, we are confronted by a living example in Christ. We're not, it's not a linear study. We are looking at the example of Christ. Mercifully, graciously, compassionately ministering to the lost. Guys, why are we studying the Gospel of John? I think the main reason is to grow in Christ's likeness. Isn't that true spirituality? Isn't that true maturity as Christians? Is true maturity just knowing a lot of verses, um, having right doctrine, I don't know, being involved in ministry, doing a lot of things? Is that maturity or is the heart of true Christianity becoming like Christ? Well, here we see the example of Christ, black and white. Power of an example. Consider this example of Christ. Being moved by compassion. His own needs aren't met. He is tired. He is weary. His closest co-worker is dead. And yet he is healing the sick. Teaching the lost. People who will one day say crucify him. Release to us Barabbas. Crucify this man. Our Lord is serving them. And ministering to them. Well it is in this context that this miracle takes place. Right. Our Lord, beginning of the day, teaching and healing them, 
We need to kind of harmonize John's account with the Synoptic Gospels account of this miracle to really fully understand what's going on. It says in, John, in the Gospel of John that the crowds are coming to him. And our Lord asks Philip, what should we do about these people? Right? We should give them something to eat. In the Gospel writers, it says that Andrew brought the boy with the five loaves and two fish in the evening. So a whole day passed by. Our Lord asked a question predicting the, the need later on in the day. And he asked Philip as a task, what should we do? Philip calculates in his mind. You know what? There are about 20,000 plus people here. And 200 denarii is eight months' wages. We could buy about, I don't know, 50 pounds of bread. I don't know, I'm just guessing here. 50 pounds of bread, we all, that guy eats a lot, these guys eat a lot. We go around, we all get a small bite. That's it, it's calculating. Later on in the day, uh, according to Matthew 14, 16, the disciples come to Christ and say, send them away. They're not going to go. These people didn't bring food. They came impulsively. They will not leave with nothing to give them. Lord, you send them away. A whole day has passed. They're tired. They're worn out. They refuse to trust in the Lord. They said, Lord, send them away. And Christ says, no. You give them something to eat. The day had become night. Jesus refuses to send the crowds away. And considerable time has passed. And here's Andrew. I don't know what Andrew's thinking. Maybe you know. I don't know. I've studied this passage this week. I have no idea what he's thinking. Is he thinking, five loaves, two fish, 12 of us, <laughs> we can all get a bite to eat, right? Or is he saying, Lord, you and I, Andrew and Christ, five loaves, two bread, we split this half and half. Lord, I'll give you three, I'll take two. We fish split half and half. Is that? I have no idea what he's thinking, but he brings this lad. He's got, hey, this lad's got... And it's not even his, his lunch. It's this last lunch. I don't know what he's doing. The boy's like, what are you doing? He brings him to Christ. I have no idea what he's thinking. And think of the other disciples. I mean, they must be like incredulous at what Andrew is doing. Like, what a knucklehead. At 20,000 people here, you're bringing a boy with his lunchbox. I mean, real smart, Andrew. Philip's like, I need to give you some math lessons later. On like how, how to distribute food. This is not going to work. But amazingly, our Lord finds it acceptable. He says, great, great, this is great. Bring him over here. Verse 10, he tells the disciples to tell the people, have the people sit down. All the men sat down, about 5,000 men only. Our Lord takes the loaves. He gave thanks, verse 11. And he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same thing with the fish. Now, this is the gap that exists between New Testament times and us. To us, we can't, because this doesn't happen. I mean, we haven't experienced miracles. It's, it's, it's almost, it's so difficult for us to wrap our minds around this fantastic event. But our Lord gave bread as much as they wanted. He gave fish as much as they wanted. And 20,000 men, women, and children had the greatest dinner of their lives. They all ate and until they were satisfied. Can you imagine the wonder and excitement as people began to grasp what Christ was doing? When you guys ever get three things, 
Things that you don't even want, you take because it's free. Somebody's giving it away, you're going just because it's free, you want that. Well, imagine Christ giving away food. Imagine just the, the sight, the attraction, the, the excitement that must have been generated by this, by this awesome miracle. Well, they all ate, they're all satisfied. Task is not complete. He told the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. Verse 13, they gathered them, they filled 12 baskets full with pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. The amazing miracle that this miracle is the watershed, was the watershed miracle of our Lord's career. It marked the height of his popularity and it would never again reach this height. It was a pivotal turning point in his, in his ministry all downhill from here. The responses of the crowd is very instructive. Right? How they respond to this miracle is very instructive. It reveals, um, really reveals to us what kind of Messiah they were expecting. Like they all had an agenda. They weren't really just innocent people coming to follow Christ, seeking to honor the Lord and, and do the right thing. No, they had an agenda that reveals what's in their hearts. There's four responses from the crowds and disciples. Number one, they wanted more. Alright, Lord, dinner was great. What's for breakfast? <laughs> right? What's for lunch? What's for dinner? Right? The, the, the crowds kept on clamoring for the Lord's for the Lord's presence, the Lord's attention. And verse 26, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, and you understood what that sign pointed to, that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah. You are looking for me, not because of those reasons. You're looking for me because you ate, your, you ate the loaves, and you had your fill. Verse 30, so they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? They want more. They want more signs, more miracles. They are not satisfied. Second response is that they thought he was a prophet promised in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18.15. And because of that, they wanted to make him king. Whether you agreed with it or not, they wanted to forcibly make him their king. This present uh, text reveals more clearly than any other portion of scripture the kind of Messiah that people wanted, wanted. Namely, they wanted a Messiah who would be a political leader and who would provide for their needs. Provide for their needs. Soon as Christ refused that position, soon as Christ uh, uh, revealed that he was not a political leader, a political messiah, but a spiritual one, in that instant, they rejected him. They turned against him. The third response is found later on in John chapter 6. We'll study it next week. After the disciples heard the words of Christ about eating the bread of life, they began to grumble. And probably before the crucifixion of Christ in the Gospel of John, probably the most discouraging verses found in John 6.66. How appropriate, right? John 6.66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Right? The first response was, they wanted more signs. 
Second response was they wanted him to be king. Third response was they grumbled and rejected him. But then fourthly, there was also a right response. There was also a right response. Remember, as I said, verse 67, our Lord turns to the twelve and he asks them, asked them, do you want to leave too, do you? And here is Simon Peter's great de declaration of faith. His great testimony of his un understanding of the spiritual realities. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He points to not the miracle, not the sign, but to the testimony of Christ. Your words are eternal life. Your words are eternal life. We believe and know, verse 69, that you are the Holy One of God. It is amazing. Same event. It repelled the crowds. It angered the Pharisees. Disciples, the false disciples turned away. But to those who had genuine faith, this event, same event, the same words caused them to testify the true identity of Jesus Christ as the Holy One of God. What opposite responses to the words and works of Christ? The crowds, the leaders were deserting him. The disciples were, their faith was cemented during this time and in this event. Well, what can we as believers in the 21st century, 2,000 years later, what can we, believers living in a land of plenty, learn from this account of the Lord's miracle? What can we learn? What can we take away? What can we go home with this morning? You know, I wrestled with this so much. There are countless truths to be learned here. There are countless truths. But we want to make sure the truths that we learn are consistent with John's intended truths. Does that make sense? We don't want to get truths that we want to get. We want to make sure the truths and the lessons that we learn are consistent with John's purpose of recording this miracle of feeding the 5,000. John's purpose in writing his gospel was to complement the synoptic, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This miracle was recorded by all the other gospel writers. Now why did John include this miracle? It's been recorded already. In fact, the synoptic writers are much more detailed. Their accounts are much more detailed and faithful in, in a sense of bringing out the background and, and, and the uh, context in which it happened. Why did John include this? John included this miracle here in chapter 6 as context, as background, so that you and I might understand verses 26 through 71. That is why. The main thrust of John chapter 6 is not feeding the 5,000. So many uh, well-meaning pastors really focus, I believe, humbly, I could be wrong, but humbly, I really believe, wrongly on this miracle in the Gospel of John. Now in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's different. But in John chapter 6, the main thrust is not this miracle. The main thrust is not Christ walking on water. Those are all background, context. To highlight the Lord's discourse in, in verses 26 through 71. Because he makes the first, first of seven, the great I am statements. 
Starting with chapter 6, verse 26, he, he, he lists out, he declares seven I am statements, and it starts in that dialogue, I am the bread of life. So without this miracle, we would have a difficult time understanding, why are they talking about bread? What's all this bread about? Well, John included this miracle so that the readers, even readers 2,000 years later, might understand that particular dialogue. That we might rightly understand the profundity of our Lord's words in that dialogue. Same thing happened. Remember in John chapter 5? Circle back a few months. That whole healing of the paralytic in Bethesda and the Sabbath was all context. But the purpose is not that miracle, but the dialogue that ensued about Christ identifying himself as the Son of God and the Pharisees wanting to kill him? Well, same thing is happening here. Guys, you will understand, really, this miracle as background and context next week. Because as we study the dialogue, we'll keep coming back to this miracle. This is what happened. That is why Christ is saying this. That is why the crowds are asking this. That is why the leaders are asking this. The sheer impact of this passage we understood actually next week. The main purpose, the main thrust. Well, but still, beyond that, beyond that main, main purpose, uh, this miracle, I believe, has um, valuable truths that we can uh, take away with us, take with us. Let me close with three truths that are taught by this miracle. Three truths that are taught by this miracle. Number one, this sign miracle again affirms the true identity of Jesus Christ. All eight miracles in the Gospel of John all point to one thing, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God. Each and every sign were revelatory in character. These signs pointed to and revealed His deity, that He is God in flesh. It was, he is saying by the provision of bread, that just as God the Father provided manna in the desert, in the same way, Jesus the Son is providing bread for Israel once again. In like manner, it confirms his identity as the Son of God, as the promised Messiah. Second truth we can learn, again, we touched on it earlier, Another a personal example of Christ's heart, the compassion of Christ. We, we, we see this in, in a, maybe a, in a, a power, the most powerful way. Not through words, not through didactic teaching by Christ, but through His example, we see that His love and compassion for the lost had no limits in the midst of this fickle multitude, his kindness stands firm. He knew again that they were here just for the signs and miracles. He knew their motives were wrong. He knew that just as quickly as they decided to follow him, just as quickly they would desert him. He was nevertheless willing to lavish his kindness upon them. His own needs weren't met, yet he sought to meet the needs of others. And the, the disciples were saying, it's their fault. They didn't bring food. 
It's not our responsibility. It's their fault. It's their lack of wisdom that caused them to be in such a predicament. We're not responsible. Well, our Lord saw through the fault and He saw the need. And moved by compassion, He met their need. I mean, two thoughts for us. Our Lord's compassion for us. That He loves us. That He loves us so much that He will meet our needs. That when we go through times of trial, when we think our needs aren't met, and we begin to calculate, we begin to add up things, see the world from a worldly perspective, not a biblical perspective, we are discounting the compassion of Christ. We're saying, God doesn't care. He doesn't know my need. He doesn't know my concern, my anxiety. He doesn't have my best interest in heart. When we start to calculate, we're discounting the compassion of Christ. May this example of Christ's compassion to the lost remind us of His love for us. Remember what Christ said? The Father sees His Son or daughter wanting bread, he will not give stone. Right? He will not give a snake. Now, I'll illustrate it with Elizabeth. I mean, and I couldn't even articulate the things, bad things I would give her because there's a thought of it makes me cringe. Now, I wrote down all these bad things, maybe as a joke, what I give to Elizabeth, but I think Sir and I, we would cringe just in thought that even, that, that thought even exists. No way, it's so far from our minds that we would harm our daughter in any way, and we're sinners. How much more, God, who is full of mercy and compassion, meet your needs and meet my needs? Before we start to calculate and think from a worldly perspective, <clears throat> we should consider the mercy of Christ. Also, the example of Christ towards the lost should compel us to love the world, to love the lost, that what, what ought to motivate us to give ourselves in ministry is compassion. That we won't set limits. You know, this day and age, we have people worrying about burnout. You know, I don't want to give too much of myself because what if I burn out? What if I can't handle it and I stretch myself too thin? Well, is that the example of Christ here? He see himself, you know what? I'm going to burn out. Everybody leave me alone. Get away. No, I mean, he's at his wit's end. I mean, he's tired. He's worn. He's the limitations of human flesh. And yet he pours himself out. Moved by compassion. Moved by mercy and love. Third and final truth. You know, I say this because it's in the text. I, I'm not eisegesing. I'm not impulsive. I'm, trying, I'm not trying to, like, stretch myself and get truth out of here. Um, look at verse... Um, Six of verse five. Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him. He said to Philip, "Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat?" Verse six, not the words of Christ. Verse six is a comment by John, post-resurrection, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as he recalls this historical event. He re he remembers what Christ said, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he knows that was a test. Because Christ knew all along what he was going to do. So John adds that comment in verse 6. He asked this only to test him. For Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord, already had in mind what he was 
going to do? Like if Philip was given this grand opportunity to meet the needs of others, to experience the ministry that he had just come from, in healing the sick and proclaiming the gospel, another great opportunity, 20,000 people were set before him. If Philip set aside his faith and he saw it from a worldly perspective and he calculated. Our Lord tested Philip and sad to say, it looks like he failed. Well, today, 2,000 years later, we can also say that God is testing you. God is testing me. God is testing everyone here today. He has presented us with a genuine need, a genuine opportunity to live by faith and minister to the lost, to minister to one another in Christ. It might be family. It might be fellow believers. It might be the lost crossing the street. It might be the mission field halfway around the world. It might be missionaries. There is a genuine need that might be, in a human perspective, impossible. I can't do this. Physically implausible. It is impossible to do this. Well, Christ already knows what He's going to do. God is sovereign. He is omniscient. Like He knew in John chapter 6, He knows now what you and I are able to accomplish. He knows now what His plans are. He gives us this test to see if we're willing to follow Him by faith. Maybe take this example to heart and follow Christ, trusting that His will be done. Let's pray. Gracious and compassionate God, we Thank you for the word this morning. We thank you for the truth in scripture. We know that the power of the word of God is not in the speaker. It's not in the packaging. It's not in the illustrations. It's not in the stories. The power of the word of God is the word of God. The power of the word of God is the, is the Christ that spoke and uttered these words, that inspired these words. And this morning we saw uh, firsthand the grace and mercy of our Lord, the, the great compassion of our Lord. Um, what an example to us where our hearts are so calloused and hardened, uh, maybe burned by the world, burned by others. Um, our guards are up. We see the Lord selflessly giving Himself, knowing that they will turn on Him, but still giving Himself as an example to us. Lord, Ed, we, we do pray you grant us a hearts of compassion, hearts that are soft towards the lost, hearts that are soft towards one another, and that we would grow in Christ-likeness. We would imitate Christ, His heart, His character. That would make an imprint on each and every one of us. Lord, we, we praise your name. We acknowledge as a body of believers that you are the Messiah, that you are the Son of God that paid for our sins and that you sit at the right hand of God this morning 
and one day you will return and to reign forever. In Jesus' name, Amen.